This morning, as we get started in the Gospel of Mark, we take our title from the first verse, the beginning of the Gospel. And so we, he, we see here uh, the beginning uh, and the initiation, the commencement of the, of the work of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to be studying verses 1 through 8. And uh, so let me read that. If you'd follow along, Mark chapter 1. And uh, after I read it, we'll have a word of prayer together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was, was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. In fact, if you would, before I pray, if you just want to take a few moments privately, quietly in your own heart to speak to the Lord and ask him to speak to you today. Ask him to show you his ways. Lord, we're here to worship you. We're also here to hear from you. We need to hear from you. We need to experience you in our lives, Lord. We we, we need you greatly. We need you deeply. And Lord, you love us deeply. You love us greatly. And so we know, Lord, that if our hearts, if our lives are leaning into you, you're going to meet with us. We know that because that's how you are. You love mankind. You love all, all of humanity. And you love us here in this room. And so, Lord, speak to us. Teach us your ways that we may follow you, that we may know you, and that we may have eternal life, Lord. Thank you. We ask your blessings now, God, in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's an old uh, Greek word, I believe, and they would use that when there was an announcement of a king's birthday or the arrival of somebody important in town. It was an evangel, and we have, that's why, where we get the word evangelistic or evangelism. It means good news. And the good news is that God loves you and Jesus Christ died for your sins and that you can have eternal life and that he can be with you all the days of your life, that he can change your life, that he can fill your life, give you a new outlook on life, that he can comfort you and lead you and guide you like no one, ever, no one else on earth ever could. And the gospel is good news. Jesus was his Greek name, His Hebrew name was Joshua or Yeshua. The name Christ is actually a title and it means the anointed one or the chosen one of God. So when you read Jesus Christ, it's Yeshua and Joshua means God is salvation. So it's God is salvation, the anointed one, the chosen one, and the Son of God describes his divinity. So just in that little phrase there, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, Mark is describing much about Jesus, who he is. Look at verses 2 and 3 if you would. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, 
who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. And between the two, there was about three to four hundred years of silence. There were no no prophets speaking in the land of Israel. God had uh, spoken his last message to the people. And then there was silence for hundreds of years. But the prophets had spoken in the Old Testament and were pointing to a Messiah. There were many, many Old Testament passages helping the people get ready to be looking for for the Savior of the world, to be looking for the chosen one of God. And so Mark tells us here that it was written in the prophets. God wasn't interested in surprising anybody. He wasn't interested in catching them off guard. These were first and foremost Jewish people who had the Old Testament, who who more or less knew the Old Testament. If they knew the Old Testament, they were familiar with these passages. And so John the Baptist was a sign to them. They were looking for a forerunner. They were looking for a savior, but they were also looking for, for the one that would come before him to get people's minds and hearts and attention leaning in the direction of the coming Savior. So the prophets were there to get the people's hearts ready. Maybe God's used a prophet-like person in your life to get your heart ready. Maybe there's been somebody that's been speaking to you about Jesus Christ, sharing their testimony with you, sharing their faith with you. That's kind of that same idea. They're getting your heart stirred up. They're getting your mind thinking about the things of God, about the kingdom of God, about heaven and hell, about sin and forgiveness, about the presence of God in your life. And so these prophets did that very thing. Mark here is, is quoting uh, from Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3. There were other passages to be sure, but these are the ones he's quoting more specifically. John the Baptist was that man. Verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger. John the Baptist was that messenger. He was the one that was sent by God. He was told to turn people away from their sins. He was, he was given an assignment. He was given a message. The message of John the Baptist wasn't, didn't originate with him. It originated with God, and God put it in his heart and said, John, this is what I want you to tell the people there in the land of Israel. In verse 3, look at there, if you would. Verse 2, just because they flow together. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. If you will, the father speaking to the son, saying, son, I've sent somebody before you. He's going to get the hearts of the people ready. The father says to the son, I'm sending the forerunner before you. They're not going to be caught off guard. There's an announcement being made before you come on the scene in an earthly fashion, in a public way, to declare who you are and to begin your public ministry. I'm sending someone before you, son, to prepare the hearts of the people. And then in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. When kings or dignitaries would visit a city, um, they would repair the roads. Maybe Napa needs a visit from a king. (laughs) Or two. (laughs) That's all I'll say about that. I remember when Debbie and I were in college at Cal State Fullerton in the 80s, and uh, the Olympics came to Los Angeles. But they had, I believe it was either the Badminton Olympics or the Handball Olympics, and there was going to be at Cal State Fullerton. Suddenly I started noticing that all the weeds, you know, in the little islands in the street, and, you know, any place that a weed can grow, a weed will grow. 
And I started noticing all these weeds were being cut down and I started noticing there's more like planters and things and the, the streets were suddenly being beautified. And I said, well, it must be because we're going to be getting worldwide attention. It's that kind of idea. When a king or a dignitary would be coming to town, if there was a pothole, well, you didn't want the king having to drive over or ride over in his wagon or cart or chariot or whatever in the pothole. And if there were high spots like a speed bump or something, you certainly don't want that. If there's debris in the road, you don't want him to have to go like this. So it's simply that idea, verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And they would, they would understand that in a physical sense because when they had a king or somebody visiting, they would make the access to the people as clear and as easy as possible. They would get the path ready. But guys, it's an obvious spiritual application, isn't it? John is saying, make a path ready to receive the coming king. But he's speaking to the people's hearts. He's saying to them, your hearts need to get ready because the Messiah, the king of the world, is coming and you need to prepare your heart and I'm helping you get ready with this ahead of time. Now I want you to think about some of the things regarding our own lives. Regarding a road, you fill in the low spots. You fill in the potholes. You, you remove the high spots. You remove the debris that impedes the approach of the king. Spiritually speaking, guys, we prepare a clear path for Jesus to come into our lives by repenting from our sins. By letting God search us out. Not by letting the pastor search you out or letting your friend search you out. Your friend might speak a truth to you. The pastor or a relative might speak the truth to you and say, hey, this thing in your life, it really needs to change and everything. But ultimately, no person has authority over you. God has authority over you. And he may use some people to get your hearts ready, just like John the Baptist was used to get their hearts ready. But spiritually speaking, what are the potholes in your life? That's the things that are lacking. What should be in your life that is lacking? And because it's lacking, your heart and mind are not ready to really receive Jesus Christ or have an ongoing relationship with him. Maybe some disciplines that are lacking in your life. Maybe some love that's lacking in your life. Maybe some humility that's lacking in your life. Things that aren't there that should be there. God is simply saying, would you notice these things and, and, and give recognition that those things are lacking in your life and it needs to change? Regarding the high spots, so down in Mexico, um, they don't really have any policemen. When we travel down to South Baja, there's no policemen uh, in the small towns. What they do to get you to slow down is they put a speed bumps in the highway. And they'll have, as you're pulling up to a, str uh, a little town, even a couple hundred people, suddenly your tires are like, and you know when it starts going, you better slow down. Because you're going to hit the speed. If you don't hit the, if you hit the speed bump too, too hard, everybody's head bounces off the ceiling. How do I know that? I just know. Okay. <laughs> Hitting a speed bump is not, is not you know, they, they call them topes down there. Hitting a speed bump like that is not a good thing. What, what are the elevated things in your life? First thing that comes to mind is pride. Do you have a high view of you, an elevated view of yourself and when we have an elevated view of ourselves, we usually have a low view of other people. Do you have too high of a view of, of money or recreation or relationships? Do you have too high of a view of fill in the blank? Now, some of those things are not wrong unless they're too elevated. Should we have a healthy self-esteem? Sure. Should you be arrogant? Absolutely not. 
Arrogance and pride keeps a person from God. Being overly interested in money or overly interested in self-indulgence keeps a person from God. What are the high things that need to be leveled in your life as God speaks to you? Not as the pastor speaks to you, but as God. God can use the pastor. God can use a child. God can use whomever he wants. In the Old Testament, he used a donkey one time to talk to a man. No comments, okay? (laughs) But as God speaks to you, as he says, you know what? You have some high spots and they need to get knocked down. I want to come into your life, but you're impeding me with your pride, with your arrogance, with your self-importance. A third thing that I thought of, when, you're, when the king is coming, you don't want rubbish in the road. You don't want the, the king's chariot or cart to have to be doing this. Clear the rubbish out. What things in your life don't belong that might be keeping you from having a clear path for Jesus to come into your life? I made a list of some reasons and, and the, Bible, the Bible talks about these things as sin. And John here, uh, look at verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the good news. God wants to forgive your sin. Everybody in the room knows what it's like to be ashamed. Everybody knows what it's like to feel guilty, to do things and you don't want anybody to know it, to maybe have to hide it, to, to cover over those things. Have you ever been found out by somebody, the thing that you were trying to hide from them, they found it out and they loved you anyway? Isn't that a good feeling? Amen or no? It's a good feeling to be forgiven. But to really be forgiven, you have to admit that you need forgiveness. And needing forgiveness is not needing forgiveness of a character quirk or something. It's needing forgiveness of sins, of admitting before God and man, God, forgive me, I'm a sinful person. I've done wrong things. And until we get to that place, those wrong things, unconfessed and unrecognized, are just debris in the road. It's a broken relationship here, and it's unforgiveness there, and it's resentment there, and all these things were, excuse me, Jesus doesn't have a clear path to you because you're unwilling to recognize the debris that's in the path. All we have to do is recognize the debris that's in the path and say, Lord, I haven't forgiven that person. I don't want to forgive that person. I like being angry at that person. I have every right in the world to be angry at that person. Maybe you do. But unforgiveness will eat your heart. It'll it'll just destroy your life. Any number of things can be debris in the road. You guys are following me, right? So verse 3, guys, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and he's calling to the people, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Let God have a clear access into your life. Why, why sometimes do we not let God have a clear access into our lives? So I wrote some things down that I've experienced. I'm sure there's more. But if you want to look at your notes here under uh, number seven, why do we sometimes not agree with God about sin? Because we love our sin. And we don't want to give it up. Nobody sins because you hate it. You sin because you like it. You like it for a little while, but you sin. And in fact, the Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a short season. But nobody does X, Y, Z because I'm going to go out and sin today and I really hate it, but I'm going to do it anyway. No, we do it because we like it. It's self-gratifying, but it's only for a short season. But if I don't recognize the wrongness of it, I don't have a clear path for God to come into my life. Another one. Why do we not agree with God about our sins? Because we're used to our sins and we can't imagine living without it. 
Why do some people hang on to relationships when they're clearly unhealthy and destructive relationships, sinful relationships? Why do people hang on to substance abuse? Why do people hang on to having a temper? Because when I have a temper, I can be right, and if God's given me a physical stature, I can intimidate people, and I don't have to say sorry to anybody, and so on and so forth. Okay, carry on, but there's debris in the road. The path for God to come into your life is not clear. You have to just say, Lord, you know what? I'm an angry man. God, change me. Why do we not agree with God about our sin? Because sometimes we depend on our sins to bring us comfort and purpose for life. I understand that. You guys understand that. We're fearful. We're alone. We've been let down. It hurts. We're mad. And so we do this, a little substance thing over here, or a little acting out over here, or a little mind games with people over there, or a little bit of self-destructive behavior here, or a little cutting, or a little burning, or whatever the case might be. And I'm not trying to attack anybody. I just know these things. You guys know these things. These things happen. They're called coping mechanisms, but a lot of them are sinful, and they're bad. They're bad for us, and they're just wrong. But what if I... But but what if I give up drinking? How am I going to face life? God will help you face life. But what if I give up fighting? Everybody's going to think I'm weak. God will protect you, etc. And this is the debris that gets, gets in the way that impedes a clear path for Jesus to come into our lives. Why do we sometimes not agree with God about sin? Because we aren't convinced that our sin is wrong. We need God to show us that our sins are wrong. I'm not going to talk you into believing that your sins are wrong because if I can talk you into it, somebody can talk you out of it. It has to be God that shows you, hey, this isn't right. You've got to give this up. Why do we sometimes not agree with God about sin? Even though we feel guilty and ashamed, we keep doing it because we're used to it. It's a habit. I don't remember how the quote goes exactly, but you know, you, you know the phrase, sometimes we get in a rut. It's like when wa- in the old west, wagons would uh, travel the same road and they'd travel in the same path and, and uh, the wheels would wear a path in the dirt road and pretty soon it turns into a rut. It's hard to get out of a rut because you've got to jump, you know, you've got to pull the wagon out of the rut. But somebody said, the only difference between a rut and a grave is the width and the depth. A rut can turn into a grave. We know that. Why do we sometimes not agree with God? A number of reasons. But John is just simply asking the people, hey, would you agree with God? Would you let him be the one that searches out your heart to show you the things that you need to be willing to give up so that he can come into your life and forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life? This is what John was doing. Look at John the Baptist, verse 3. He was called the voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, The gospel has to be announced. Changing gears a little bit. The gospel has to be announced in order to be effective. Good works can certainly give credibility to our lives, but they are not enough. There's a bumper sticker out there right now. I understand the sentiment of it, but it says, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Have you guys seen that? You can't preach the gospel without using words. Good works will help you have an admirable life and if you're a Christian and you're, you treat people well and love people and, and all of that and help people, that will give you credibility to speak the gospel. But the gospel has to be spoken. 
Every Christian in the room, guys, God has called you guys to make disciples of all nations. If you're a Christian, it's not just Pastor Bill's job, Pastor Rob and Pastor Vince and a few others that teach home fellowships. It's every Christian's responsibility to make disciples of all nations. I just want to encourage you to really think about that. You've been given a calling. You've been given a responsibility and the gospel needs to be spoken. Look at your notes here. This is from the New Living Translation. Romans chapter 10 How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? The apostle works backwards in his reasoning. Nobody can hear about Jesus unless somebody tells them, unless somebody goes, unless somebody says, you know what, I want to tell that person about Jesus. I want to share with them how my life has been changed. That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. Good news, the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. Now look at verses 4 and 5, guys. John the Baptist, John came baptized. I'm mixing my words here, aren't I? John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This was a baptism of repentance. Baptism in those days, and I believe in these days, should still be by total immersion. And in those days for the Jewish people, it symbolized the the spiritual cleansing of a life. When we baptize people today, we we place them beneath the water, and it's kind of a a symbol of their old life as being buried in the waters of baptism, and when they come up, they come up in the newness of life. Baptism doesn't save anybody. It's symbolic of what God has done in a person's heart. But John is asking the people, if you really want to get the debris out of your life, if you admit that there are things lacking that need to be there, if you are admitting that there are things elevated in your life that need to go, if you are admitting and agreeing with God, repentance is agreeing with God and and following through. If you're agreeing with God that there's debris in your life, may I say the word junk and garbage? There's garbage in your life and it needs to be cleared out. Be willing to let go of the garbage so that God can bring you abundant eternal life. So this is the baptism of repentance the people express their intentions and their minds in a public ceremony. Every, just open, a lot of humility there. A lot of humility there. Guys, you know when, when there's a wedding, there's two people up on the platform here, and when I get to, I love officiating weddings. Uh, it's just blessed time. I, I don't think I can ever remember a bad wedding. They're just really nice, you know. And um, remember some funny ones, but we won't go there, okay? Um, but there's two people that are publicly expressing their commitment. I'm going to live with you until I die. They're doing it publicly in front of witnesses because they want everybody to know and witness it. It's the same kind of thing here, except it's a lot of humility. It's like, I'm here before all these people behind me and you're baptizing me because I'm a sinner and I don't want to be a sinner anymore. I want God to change me, so dunk me, John. Put me into that dirty Jordan River water. I don't know if it's dirty or not. It is now, kind of. Dunk me under the water, John, in front of all these people. This is the, I'm so serious about this. I want to do it in front of them. That's what that baptism was about. 
They heard John's preaching. They agreed with him about their condition. In humility, they were baptized. Let's look at the other side of your, of your page now. Look at verse 4, for the remission of sins. That's what it was about. That's what it was leading to. Jesus would come and die on a cross to pay for their sins. Look, I want you to notice, the, the, this is beautiful, guys. Notice the definitions there at the, at the, at the top of the second page. The word remission of sins, it has the idea of being released from bondage or imprisonment. It's like you're sitting in a jail cell and the judge says, you're free to go. And you say, why? Because somebody else paid for you. You're free to go. The state of California, the county of Napa, does not hold these crimes against you any longer. You are free to go. But I didn't do anything. Listen, do you want out or not? (laughs) Somebody else did it for you. Do you want to be free? And that's the good news. But the person to really appreciate it has to realize that they got themselves in that condition, in that situation by themselves anyway. Remission also just means forgiveness and pardon of sins as if those things had never been committed. Isn't it great maybe when you're applying for a job with Uber or something? I have never applied for a job with Uber. Uh, might do it someday, I don't know. Uh, but I imagine they do a, a lot. They do they do a little background check on your driver driving record, and you're kind of thinking, oh man, I hope they don't find this, this, and this. <laughs> and then the report comes back from the DMV. It's all clean, and you're like, yes. <laughs> it's that feeling of like, those things aren't assigned to me anymore. I don't have to worry about those things. And regarding the spiritual and eternal life that we're talking about, it's God saying, I don't see those things anymore. You're forgiven. And that's why it's good news. But the the hard part is people don't like to admit that they've sinned against God. That's the hard part. That's where the collision is. Once a person says, I've sinned against God and I can't save myself, they're ready. The path has been cleared. The Savior can come. Repentance doesn't give you salvation, but repentance prepares you to receive salvation. Repentance is something we do all the days of our lives. Verse 5, And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. From Jerusalem to the Jordan River, the the shortest distance is 20 miles by foot or on on the back of a donkey or a camel or horse or whatever. The shortest distance is 20 miles. It says they came from all over Judea, 30, 40, 50 miles. John must have been quite a preacher. A lot of people don't like driving across town to go to church. John must have been quite a preacher. He must have had quite a message. Quite a radical work of God. I think about this, and I don't know, I'm just going to touch on it for a second. You know, what did they go out to see? What are you doing this weekend? I don't know. I heard there's a freak out at the Jordan River. Let's go watch him preach. Maybe he's funny. Maybe he's weird. Yeah, it's 20 miles. 20 miles. Let's go. That's okay. It must be entertaining. So maybe some people went out of curiosity. Maybe some other people went because it's like, you know what? This guy's saying that God will forgive me. I want to know about that. This guy's saying that I can have a new life and I can be changed. I want to know about that. And so the people made quite an effort to get out there, at least a minimum 20-mile journey. Look at verses 6 and 7. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, grasshoppers and honey, protein and carbs, right there. 
Is that paleo, you think? I don't know. And he preached, verse 7, and he said, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Aspects of John's ministry. Look at your notes. He was a simple man with a powerful message, and the multitudes were moved to hear him. Simple man with a powerful message. He didn't cater to people's desires to hear a soft message. He was uniquely called to be a strong voice in a less than convenient location. He didn't preach himself. He preached Jesus. He didn't exalt himself. He exalted Jesus. His message was all about Jesus. I think it's kind of rare these days that we would even see such a thing. I know there are some amazing preachers that people will, will drive to go see, you know. And now we have the internet and you can watch. I know there's people watching online today. They're at home, sick, or kids are sick, or they live somewhere else, different time zone. And that's all beautiful. But, and, and we're glad that we can do that. Um, but, to say, but to say this, I want to be, I want to put my eyes on that guy. That's just amazing to me. I want to to hear him firsthand. I don't want to hear witness reports. I want to hear him firsthand. I want to be there. I want to feel it. This guy has a message from heaven. Now, I I thought about something else. Well, let's read a quote from David Gusick here and then move on to another idea. Verse 7, he says, There comes one after me. He's mightier than I whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. David Gusick says this, this might sound like a spiritual exaggeration on John's part. Maybe he's being overly humble. But John said this because in his day, the rabbis taught that a teacher might require just about anything of his followers except to make them take off their sandals. That was considered to be too much. But John said that he was not even worthy to do this for Jesus. Rabbis were itinerant or local preachers and they would have their students, they would have their disciples and their disciples would follow them around and listen to them teach and the rabbi would sit and the students would come and the rabbi kind of had influence and, and, and such over the, over the disciples. Would you do this? Would you do that? They would ask him to do things and the disciple, well, of course I'll do it, but they would never ask him to take off my sandals because that was an insult. John said, I'm not even good enough for that. I'm not, I'm, he's infinitely higher than me. I'm just a voice but I have a great message. I want to just touch on this as a secondary point, but I think it's important. John the Baptist exemplifies a no-frills church ministry experience. Please receive this. I'm not on the the war path with anybody, but I think we need our perspective checked at times regarding American Christianity. If I may say these things, There's nothing wrong with a comfortable church and a a comfortable ministry environment. On hot days, I'm glad we have air conditioning. On cold days, I'm glad we have heaters. I'm glad. Glad we have nice lighting. I'm glad we have the screen. I'm glad we have a sound system. You would hear me, uh, and I would yell, but I'd be a little bit hoarse at the end of the service, but you can hear me better because we have a microphone. That's all wonderful. Nice parking lots are great. Cafes, coffee bars, all these things at at a church are great. they They can be very, very pleasant. Wonderful. There's nothing wrong with building relationships with people in order to share the gospel. We should make friends with people 
Number one, just simply because they're people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and serve coffee to our neighbors across the street. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the Christian always has in the back of his mind a hope and a desire. I hope I can tell him about Jesus sometime. So there's a phrase that we use, we earn the right to be heard. I'm sure you guys have heard that phrase. I think some of our thinking has gone wrong because I think that sometimes we think ministry can't happen unless the environment is right and we've earned the right to be heard. Those things aren't wrong. Nice environment's nice. Having a respectable life so somebody will listen to you, that's really great. But John the Baptist had neither. He said, "Come, walk 20 miles to hear me out in the desert. I'm not going to impress you. We're not going to have a coffee bar. We're not going to have nice music. We're not going to have anything. It's me and you and God. And I just want to encourage us to realize that that is the essence. I'm talking to people that are in, involved in thinking about church ministry. That is the essence of ministry. It's God using a man or a woman to give his message. That's the essence. Everything else is nice. But guys, as, you, as God may move you on to other places, don't judge a ministry or be involved in a church because of the frills. It's the substance of the person and the message, and it's exalting Jesus, right? Amen? You guys with me? So let's not get those things confused. John didn't earn the right to be heard. He just said it. There's some of us that don't like people that stand on a corner with signs and bullhorns proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't really matter if you like it or not. That's kind of what John was doing. Is that for everybody? No, but it's definitely for John the Baptist, guys. And it's legit. It doesn't matter if we like it or not. It's God using a man or a woman sending his message. That's, that's the essence of ministry. Look at here Jesus speaking about John in Matthew 11. Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Now check this out. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The kingdom of God was about to change radically at the preaching of John the Baptist because Jesus now, God in the flesh, was on the earth. Let's finish up with verse 8. If you have any questions, I'd be glad to try to answer them. John said this, I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was there to kind of grab people gently by the shoulders and shake them a little bit. Hey, there's low spots. Hey, there's high spots. Hey, there's rubbish. Hey, there's sin. And God wants to come to you, but you've allowed all these things to accumulate and you have prevented a, a God from having a clear path into your heart. It's amazing to me that God keeps the universe in perfect motion, but he will not violate our free will. He will not violate your free will. If you say no to him, he'll respect that. And so this whole thing is basically John just saying this, hey, the Savior of the world's coming. Say yes. Just agree with him about your sin. Confess it. He'll remove it. He'll take your shame away. But shame isn't taken away until there's a confession of sin. 
There needs to be an agreement and a willingness to turn from it, to say, Lord, I've sinned. I'm not, and by the way, repentance isn't promising to never do something again. Don't promise God anything, <laughs> except that you'll try. And then maybe you won't even try all the time. Don't promise God anything. He's just asking you to agree with him about your life. And as we agree and open our hearts, and now on this side of the cross, Jesus, forgive me. And he does. And that's why it's good news. Why do people never get to the good news part? Because there's a little bad news to start with. You've sinned. And John was sent to tell people, you need to, you need to agree with God about this and you need to be willing to forsake it. John could lead them to repentance, but he couldn't change their lives. And Jesus is the one that changes lives. Look at He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When a person becomes a Christian, the Spirit of God comes into them and grabs a hold of them and changes them. Anybody say amen to that? If you just become a part of a church, you're just going to have a long, bony-fingered pastor waving his finger at you. I know what you're doing. We have people all over town watching you. I checked. I'm stalking you on Facebook. I see what you're... Po- eh. when, a, when a man or a woman says yes to Christ and they have the Spirit of God in them, you have a relationship with God. And everything comes from the inside. And you know... You know what's right, you know what's wrong. You have strength you never had. You start thinking more clearly than you ever did. You start loving holiness and hating sin. There's some verses there, you can read them on your own. But the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, first we read about John the Baptist, now he ends with Jesus the Baptist. Jesus is a baptizer, guys, and the element is the Holy Spirit. And I just want you to follow me, this is my last thing, are you with me? Don't miss this. If I have a bowl of water here and it's tinted, but you can't see what color it is, and I have a white cloth and I put it in like that and I baptize the cloth and I let it soak for a while and I pull it out and the cloth is blue, what color is the water? The element that you are baptized into, placed into, you take on that that characteristic, you take on the nature of that thing that you are immersed in and covered over with and Jesus said, I'm going to cover you over with myself. And you start to change. I remember that time in my life when I started to change. The things that I used to like, I started not liking anymore. I started like... And now, now God even made me to like hug people. <laughs> I remember in the 70s, man, if you were a guy and you came to hug me, it's like, get away, man. No, it's not like, like hug, what am I doing hugging people? What is this about? It's, guys would come to me, it's like, you back away, man. I'm not going he changed. I mean, it's kind of silly, but it was true. I didn't, you don't hug me. You're, oh, dude, get away, you know. He changes us. He changes us. He gives us love. He gives us self-control. He gives us patience. All these things. He immerses you in himself if you'll agree with him about your sin and be willing to turn away. It's called repentance. If you repent and come to him, he'll wipe your sins away. Do we have any questions this morning? What does it mean that Jesus died for my sins? I love, I love the illustration of a guy that, that, that is convicted of a crime and he can't pay the fine, so he has to go to jail and he's sitting in his jail cell and he's just like, I deserve this, I deserve to be here. And then the, the, the officer, the, uh, the bailiff or whoever comes and lets him out and he says, why am I being set free? Because somebody paid your fine for you. 
It doesn't mean that you never committed the crime. You did commit the crime. That's why you were in here. It was your fault. But somebody greater than you who had resources that you don't came and paid for your sins, paid for your crime, and now you're set free. Jesus Christ took our place. He was a substitution on the cross. He died in our place. Paid for our sins. When a person becomes a Christian, God doesn't sweep your, your, your sins under the rug. They were put on Christ. Your sins were paid for. Not winked at or ignored. They were paid for. And if you really embrace that, then you love the Lord. It's a good question. Any other questions?